Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Alright, so, <clears throat> today we get to tackle. Uh, I think last week somebody made the, the comment that it was the most misquoted or perhaps mistimed verse in all the Bible, you know, right when you face tragedy uh, or something, somebody comes along and will say, well, you know, God works in all things to bring about good or something like that. And uh, it just makes you feel, it leaves you feeling incredibly empty, uh, incredibly hopeless, because there's, there really is no hope uh, in the way that, that that verse is often um, Shown So, uh, just by way of quick review, so we have made our way through chapters 1 through 4, where Paul has been explaining God's righteousness, particularly uh, as it relates to faith and how God has always been interested in people who demonstrate faith to Him. And then in chapters 5 through 8, he's been expounding on that righteousness, but specifically dealing with salvation, how how God's righteousness is revealed to us in salvation. And then we even broke it down a little bit further by chapter, where in chapter 6, Paul was primarily dealing with the penalty of sin, the fact that God has positionally placed us in a right relationship with Him to where uh, we no longer need to fear condemnation. Chapter 7, we dealt with the power of sin, the fact that sin does have influence in our lives, but it doesn't have to have terminal influence in our lives, and how the fact that the, our, our victory in the power of sin actually grows from God dealing with the penalty of sin, right? Romans chapter 6, don't you know that those of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin. And so, our victory... And the power of sin actually grows out of what God has done for us in in dealing with the penalty of sin. And then finally, chapter 8 deals with the presence of sin. That that verse where Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. When uh, we are made whole again, back to the way that God intended us to be. And then I gave you three theological terms to apply to these. So the penalty of sin, the theological term that matches up with that is what? Begins with a J. Justification. Justification is the theological term that we often think of when we're talking about the penalty of sin. How about the power of sin? Begins with an S. Sanctification. Uh, So justification is that instantaneous moment where God declares us to be righteous in His sight, removing the penalty of sin. Sanctification is the process where we learn to sin less and rely on God more. And then the final one, the presence of sin in our lives when we're no longer dealing with sin is glorification. Right, very good. So that is the, uh, again, back to instantaneous uh, that'll be the instantaneous removal of sin's presence in our lives. Our sin nature will be gone. And when does that occur? Is that going to happen when I hit 58 or 62? What? When does that happen? Anybody? 
death. Some type of death, whether it is me physically dying or God's return to where Paul says we'll all be changed. In a moment, we will all be changed. Our flesh, uh, the sinfulness will be taken out of our flesh and we will be glorified. So, okay, so we come to uh, Romans 8.28 through the end of the chapter. And it really is a bit of a transitional piece Paul's getting ready to talk about Israel's failure and how God's faithfulness is shown even in Israel's failure. Uh, And he's coming out of dealing with um, how we overcome sin. And so there's a bit of a transition here. Uh, So I thought it would be good for us to just take a step back based on what we have learned so far from Romans chapter 1 all the way up to uh, Romans chapter 8 two-thirds of the way through the chapter. After the fall of Adam and Eve, did God have to change His mind? Or did He have to change His plan? Did He have a moment there in the garden where He sat back and said, hmm, what do I do now? You see, I think a lot of times as Christians, that's what we think, right? We think that God had this plan. He put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, just do what I say. And they didn't do what he said. And so now, God had to go through a series of events and people and all these things to somehow bring about salvation. And that's not at all true. In reality, what we see is a very linear progression of God's plan. Um, It it started with Adam and Eve. It involved uh, Noah and Abraham and Moses and David ultimately being fulfilled in Jesus, and, and the church is the result of that plan. Um, so what we want to do is kind of flesh out a little bit of that uh, uh, understanding of that plan, because I think it has incredible consequence here, Romans chapter 8. Now, the other thing that we need to do, and this is always a, a fun thing to do, is discuss the ways that people... Uh, theologians in particular view the Bible. They, we come up with systems. Uh, and the system is intended to help us understand the Bible. Um, so we start with a set of guiding principles that, uh, and this would be the theological system, and everything has to order itself in that system. Okay? So what I'm going to do, and I will show you, uh, so I have in the notes, when I give them to you next week, and I promise both sets will be here, there will be a paragraph description of each of these theological systems that we're going to be talking about. So I don't want you to feel like you have to frantically write a bunch of notes about this. You might want to jot a few things down, uh, but uh, you'll have a pretty good idea, or you'll have a general idea of what this system is. So the first system is what we call dispensational theology. Um, Dispensational theology is a big fancy word that basically means theologians view uh, God as looking at history, or to him, time, you know, as it unfolds, in different blocks of time. So there was a certain dispensation where God dealt with mankind based on law or grace or through Israel or through the church and each of these 
time periods then has its own set of rules, its own set of players. Um, the uh, A couple of things about dispensational theology, it, it tends to look at people groups rather than individuals. Israel, the church, the nations, uh, it, it tends to look at those overall groups. The other thing that I will say about this theological system, it's really rather new in its development. Uh, probably around the 17th or 18th century, it really became popularized. People like John Calvin um, held to this belief. Um, they also helped to, to formulate some of these things. Um, they, the, in dispensationalism, they saw this distinction between Israel and the church. So Israel had its promises, its, its plans, and, and the church had its promises and its plans, and those two never come together. They never meet. And so they see a, a difference. Now, the other thing that is important, it's going to be important for our discussion today, they place a great deal of emphasis on something called total depravity. If you've ever heard about uh, John John Calvin, I don't know what Kenny's doing in there, but he's going nuts on that. He's not listening. Uh, so total total depravity. Uh, that's the first fundamental tenet in John Calvin's uh, uh, series of things. There, they if you use it, an acronym, it's TULIP, and T stands for total depravity. And the idea is that man is so totally depraved, it doesn't matter what he does, he can never turn to God. And so God must act first. God must reach out in provenient grace and actually capture that heart or that soul, or this person can never come to faith in God. And uh, so the reason that that's important is then when, when dispensationalists get to the discussion of election or predestination, it becomes almost fatalistic. What I mean by that is God has set and determined that this person, I choose this person and so this person is going to come to faith in me. Almost like a robot. Okay, uh, that, that would be the drawback to this theological system. And so they would read this passage that we're about to read much different than you and I are going to read it. I'll just tell you right now. I, I mean, there are some things that I think that are remotely close in dispensational theology, but then there's a whole lot of things that just are out there. So, the second system is what we call covenantal theology, and that is that God has always dealt with people through promises or through relationships. And we call those promises or relationships, those those formal times, as covenants. Basically, God made a covenant with Noah. God made... God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Moses. God made a covenant with, uh, well, we'll stop at Moses. So God makes a covenant with Moses and it becomes the law. And God says, anybody that's going to relate to me is going to relate to the law. And so we look at that and we say, no, God's dealing with the people of Israel. No, he's dealing with individuals. God could judge individuals within the greater system. And we see that time and time again. And the same thing within the church. So, so God is constantly dealing with individuals. Uh, this system sees no difference between Israel and the church. So the promises that are offered to each uh, are available to all. It interprets, uh, I didn't mention this, but uh, for dispensational theology, they tend to interpret prophetic or apocalyptic passages very literally. 
Uh, Covenantalists then tend to look at those as more of an allegory. Uh, It's a story that represents a spiritual truth. Um, So their view of election and predestination is going to focus heavily on the free will of man. That it's man's choice, and so we have to understand election, choosing, predestination in light of that free will. Okay? And then you have the third one, which I think uh, it's been a, uh, I guess I didn't mention this, covenantalism has been around for years, Um, would have been early church fathers like Augustine and people like that would have promoted this type of theological system. Um, So it has been the quote-unquote traditional view of the church. Uh, And then you have the third uh, system, which is really, it's been popular forever. It's only been formalized recently, and that's what we call exegetical theology. Uh, And basically this says our theology needs to grow out of what we read. So if I have a thought, and I think... The earth is, is uh, the sky is green. And I read in the scriptures that the sky is blue. My thinking has to adapt to what I read. I have to submit to the truths that I become, that become available to me so that then my life, my theology is, is molded by the truth. Um, and basically this system is going to, uh, look at the scriptures and try and synthesize them together in a sense that makes sense, but also understanding the fundamental truth of this system is God's ways are much higher than ours. We will understand what we can, but there are some things that we just cannot understand. Because God's way too smart, way too wise, way too infinite, way too whatever for us to ever grasp. And so some things we just have to say, this is what we think, but we don't know. Okay, so these three systems then are kind of competing over this passage because of a few certain things. Let's read the passage, and then we'll come back and I'll make some some comments about it. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know... That in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those uh, whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble, hardship, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. 
For we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that is Paul's summary, his step back, his uh, transition, and you think, oh my goodness, how in the world do we even begin to tackle this? We're going to break it into two sections, verses 28, 29, and 30, and then verses 31 through the end of the chapter. Verses 28, 29, and 30 really fit with what Paul has been talking about. Notice the connecting word. The very first word is and, right? So Paul is connecting this back to something. We've talked about contrasting words. What's a contrasting word? Chapter 3, verse 21. But God made a righteousness known. But is a contrasting word. It's going to contrast compared to something else. And is a connecting word. Uh, Paul says, and we know. So let's go back into the previous passage. Look at verse 18. We have three times that Paul tells us something that we know. First of all, verse 8. I consider, that's a thought word. Mentally, I look at my life and I say that my present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul talks about here in this section that we know that creation has been subjected to frustration not because of its own will, but because of the will of the Creator. And and creation did nothing wrong, right? Adam sinned and now creation is suffering it's innocently suffering Paul then talks about how the spirit moves in our lives in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for but the spirit steps in and prays I know that my suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in me I know that creation has been subjected to frustration And there are times in that when I am innocently suffering that I don't know what I ought to pray for. Thank God the Spirit steps in and prays. That's Paul's argument in verses 18 through the following. Verse 28 he comes and he says, And we know, so here's another one, here's the fourth, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. Um, So what is Paul saying here? First of all, this word know is intuitive understanding. There's two words that are used for knowledge in in Greek. One is an experiential knowledge. Um, It is the fact that we don't just understand it through studying it. We don't just understand it through looking at it. We know it because we experience it. Think of marriage. You can tell somebody, oh, I I have a a guy that I work with. Uh, He and I were putting on a presentation together this week. He's getting married in less than a month. And as we were staying around, we were talking about marriage. And 
you know, he was talking about his fears and his nerves and all these things. And, and I was sharing with him what marriage can be like, what it is like. But in reality, you don't know what it's like till you experience it, right? I mean, you hear what everybody else says, but in reality, you don't know until you experience it. That's experiential knowledge. This is intuitive knowledge. This is knowledge that we gain from thinking about things and, and understanding things. That, um, cognitive reasoning based on the available evidence. God works for the good of those who love Him. History tells us that God has been working in the lives of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses in uh, David, in Jesus' life, God has been working to bring about good things. So we come down to where we have this wrestling. Are we saying, or is Paul saying in this section, that God is going to overrule when it comes to the affairs of mankind? In other words, he looks down and he sees something. He sees his child and he says, oh, that's not good for my child, so I'm going to step in and stop that. Or I'm going to bring this into the life of my child because this is going to be good for my child. See, that's how we tend to think about this. That God is up there as a master puppeteer in just dictating the things that are happening in our lives. And I don't think that's at all what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that God is ruling over the affairs of mankind. It doesn't matter what happens in our lives or around our lives. God will step in and redeem it. The most horrible thing in the world, death, disease, um, destruction, God can step in and redeem that. God had no part in bringing that thing about. But God can step in and redeem it. And see, that's what we want to do. We want to blame. As soon as things go bad, who do we blame? God, why are you doing this? Why did you allow this? We don't give Him thanks for all the good stuff that happened up to that point, do we? But we want to blame Him as soon as something comes into our life that is painful. When in reality, what God is saying, it's in those moments that you have to recognize that sometimes I had nothing to do with that. But I'm right here willing to bring about healing and restoration in the midst of it. God doesn't overrule the affairs of mankind, but He does rule over them. He is sovereign. He stands back and He says, My plans will ultimately be accomplished. You can't thwart them. That's why time and time again, when mankind has tried to stamp out Christianity, they haven't been able to do it. Because Jesus Christ himself said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. You can try. You can try and silence the voice of the apostles. They did, didn't they? They tried to silence them through death, murder. They tried to stamp out the writings by burning in Nazi Germany. They tried to burn all copies of the scriptures. And yet, people found ways. They committed it to memory. And as soon as they got out, they recorded it. God is constantly ruling over man's attempts to change these things. Okay, Uh, real quickly, I want to leave a a moment for for questions here in a minute. 
We know that in all of these things, God will continuously work to bring about righteousness, goodness for those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Verse 29, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among the many brothers. Now, Again, if you take the uh, what we would call that dispensational view of this, you say, okay, God looked at Bob and said, oh, Bob's going to be a good guy. i got to save him. So I'm going to choose him for salvation. Um, they would look at that passage like this. Now, what is the logical outcome of that? Well, the logical outcome is if God chooses Mike... Or chooses Bob, he's also going to look at Mike and say, ooh, he's a knucklehead. I'm not going to choose him. I'm going to prepare him for destruction. Now what kind of a loving God does that sound like to you? Does that sound consistent with the message that Jesus shares when he says, whosoever will come, it is available. So you can see there's a problem with that theology, and that's why uh, I reject that fundamental tenet of dispensational theology because it doesn't seem to fit with what the scripture teaches so let's look at this a different way Uh, what does it mean for God to foreknow well there is a segment that says well God looked at Bob and said God is uh, Bob is eventually going to believe God knew ahead of time that when confronted with the truth of the gospel God uh, Bob is going to believe in me and he is ultimately going to have faith in me so I'm just going to predestine him for salvation. Hmm. There's a problem with that too. Because that means God also knew there were people that were going to reject that and he could have changed things so that that person wouldn't have rejected the truth. So foreknowledge here, it does mean to know ahead of time. It, it, it leaves us with the idea that God has known us forever. When God was creating, He was thinking about Mike. When God was creating, He was thinking about each of us and what how we would respond within, within His creation. It is definitely a, a knowledge uh, about things. God did not need to change His mind or His plan. He has been working throughout all time to bring each of us to the point of reconciliation with Him. Probably specifically referring here in foreknowledge, Paul is probably specifically referring to the believers of Paul's time at Rome and everywhere else in the first century. But by extension, he's talking about all believers. God knew everyone. And he, in His choosing, He chooses various things that, that cause us to come to a place to where we must confront the truth of faith and repentance and sin and glory. And I think that's what is meant here when when Paul says, for those God foreknew, he has in the back of his mind Jews and Gentiles. Remember where he's going in this. Chapters 9 through 11, he's going to show the difference. What, What happens? How do we defend against the fact that Israel rejected their Messiah? Israel rejected Christ. And, and God did have to step in. And He did have to provide a people group that would be receptive. 
And so, in this sense, I think Paul is almost talking about the Gentiles here. He's tipping his hand. Those that God foreknew, God knew all along that He was going to bring the promise to the Gentiles. Take your mind all the way back to the promise to Abraham. What did God promise to Abraham? I will make you a great nation. There's a second part of that. The Father of all nations. I will bless all people groups through you. I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. And then he says, those he foreknew, those he knew that must come in, he also predestined. Predestined means to mark out a boundary. God made the events happen so that the gospel would come to Gentiles. Think about that. Who is the apostle to the Gentiles? Is it Peter? Peter's the apostle to the Jews, right? It's Paul. Think about the road to Damascus. Think about his training there. Think about all the events that led Paul to this point to where he could be the apostle to the Gentiles. So, he goes on, uh, he did not just foreknow them, and he did not just predestine us. He predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, so that Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called into faith. Those He called into faith, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Notice that in each and every case here, Paul uses the past tense because in God's mind, it's done. There is no hope of glory in the mind of God. It is glory. Remember when I told you before, we live in the Friday. Where does God live? Post-resurrection Sunday, doesn't He? That is exactly why Paul writes verses 31 through the end of the chapter. Because in the mind of God, He lives like it's Sunday all the time. He doesn't fear the grave because the grave has been conquered. He doesn't fear somebody uh, coming and making accusations because the accuser has been defeated. He doesn't worry about the judge because the judge has already given his life for us. And so, Paul says, what then shall we say in response to this, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God has looked out over the landscape of human history, and has looked favorably upon us, what do we really need to fear? I mean, even if something happens to us that seems bad for the moment, ultimately, good happens, right? Even if I have a disease... Or even if people come and they put me in chains and tell me, if you don't reject Jesus, we're going to separate your head from your body. Even in that, what is my ultimate hope? I consider that my present suffering isn't worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And so Paul asks that same question a different way. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? How does chapter 8 begin? There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus who died? More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So, who, here's the first one, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who are you worried about in your life being able to separate you from the love that God has shown you in Christ Jesus? Then Paul asked the question, what, without asking what, shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Um, This section defines for us the permanency of God's salvation because it never was based on merit. It never was based on our goodness. It has always been based on God as the justifier and Jesus Christ as the judge who comes and offers himself for us. Therefore, nothing can separate us from his love. There is no condemnation. It it is the perfect wrap-up, if you will, to this section because Paul has already shown us how God has dealt with sin through His righteousness in dealing with the penalty, power, and presence of sin. It's done in God's mind. God has it all figured out. That was His plan all along was to send Jesus Christ to accomplish what we never could. The law couldn't do it. Nothing ever could do it but Jesus Christ. And so God's like, I I don't know what you guys are worried about. I got this. It's okay. And yet, what is our problem? We live in the Friday. We live in the Friday where it seems like Satan's winning. We look around us at political things that happen. We look around the world at the turmoil that happens and we think, God, you know, are you paying attention? Are you, are you watching the news or are you, you know, maybe you're reading a paper and it's a little bit old. Watch the news, it's up to date, right? None of this is catching God by surprise. Uh, are we worried somehow that trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword is somehow going to separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to answer the question of who. I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And when we get done reading that, we should say, oh my goodness, how much God loves me. Right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so that is really how Paul wraps up his teaching about the explanation in the expounding of the gospel. Now he's going to come back to it and he's going to say, what does it mean to live the gospel? Chapters 12 through the end of the book. What does it mean to actually gospel? Think about that. Not just believe the gospel, but live the gospel. Paul's going to show us what that means in in chapters 12 through the end of the book. In the meantime, he's got to deal with this issue of Israel uh, and their failure and how that 
figures into God's plan. And so we will take a couple weeks to look at that. But um, I want to leave you with, uh, I try to do this each week, and then I want to make sure that we have plenty of time for questions so uh, or comments. Um, what is the central truth of this section in Romans? So God's plan is perfect to bring about His righteousness positionally as well as practically in our lives. God doesn't need anything else. He is going to be able to perfectly position us to receive His righteousness and then practically to live that out in everyday life. So, with that being said, three questions or three statements. Can you endure whatever you may be experiencing knowing that God's plan is to complete what He started? There's one caveat to all of this. When you read the writings of Paul, Paul's caveat is always, if you continue to believe. If you continue in faith. If you keep on keeping on. If you endure. If you persevere. You see, the Jesus told us there would be things that would come into our lives. Remember the parable of the sower? And He scattered the seed and there were four different types that it fell on. And one of those was the weeds and the thorns grew up along with it and it choked out the gospel, the truth. Can you endure whatever you you may be experiencing knowing that God's plan is to bring to fulfillment what He has started? In His mind, it's already done, right? God's going to get you from Friday when Jesus is put in the grave all the way to Sunday when He comes out resurrected and glorified. Um, Secondly, we need to learn to submit to the truth that God is watching over us no matter what comes into our lives. Bad things are not a punishment from God. Sometimes they are the effect of someone else's sin. We need to understand that. Yes. We need to submit to the truth that God is watching over us no matter what comes into our lives. Bad things are not a punishment from God. Sometimes they are the effect of someone else's sin. There are going to be times that people are going to sin. Remember Romans chapter 1. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven. And then when you go all the way through that, you realize, how is God's wrath being revealed? It's through our sinfulness and the way that we treat one another. And sometimes that hurts. It causes incredible pain. Personally. Even corporately. From one nation to another. But those things are not a punishment from God. That is God standing back and saying, you wanted it your way? Go ahead. I will step in at some point. And you won't like it. But for now, go ahead. And so we need to learn to see those things not as a punishment from God. If you contract a disease, if a loved one dies, that's not God reaching out and whacking you. We have this perverted view of God that He's just sitting there waiting to smack us around. Finally, can you believe that God's love and presence is enough to sustain you? Can you hold on to the fact that if I have God, I really need nothing else. If if everything in my life were taken away in an instant, would it still be enough? 
Uh, there was a man uh, several hundred years ago who had that happen to him. He was going on vacation and um, just wasn't able to travel with his family, and so his family had to go ahead, and they were killed in tragedy. They sunk in a ship. His children suffering the horrible death of drowning. And when he reached the spot, several weeks later, months later, that the tragedy happened, he began to pen the words to one of the most famous hymns of all time. The hymn is called, It Is Well With My Soul. And I encourage you this week, look up the words to that song. Because they are as much a prayer and a cry as they are an anthem. When peace like a river attends my way. When sorrow like sea billows roll. Uh, He continues to go through. and, And in the end, it is God's presence that sustains him, that lets him write the words, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. You see, I think if if Paul were to write one hymn, it would be that one. It doesn't matter what happens in life, whether we are well fed or starving to death, whether we are facing the sword or we're at peace, we need to find that it is well with our soul. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.